Good evening, everyone. Welcome to this public lecture uh, arranged by LSE Ideas, the LSE's new center for the study of international affairs, diplomacy, and strategy. And I'm one of the Ideas directors, together with my dear friend and colleague, Professor Michael Cox, who is also in the audience tonight. And it is a particular pleasure for us to introduce Professor Christopher Andrick, uh, who is going to speak to us today on his new book. Um, Chris is Professor of Modern and Contemporary History at Cambridge University. He is, without any doubt, the world's leading scholar of intelligence history. Uh, you will know him, many of you will know him, as a regular presenter, BBC Radio, and from TV documentaries that he's done several of. Uh, for myself, his main role, of course, by far, is being president of Corpus Christi College in Cambridge, uh, which is one of my own spiritual homes. Chris has written a number of books on intelligence, on strategic history relating to intelligence in, in various ways. Um, the Mitrokian Archive, the two volumes that came out some years ago, uh, were probably as close as we're ever going to get, at least in my view, to the inner workings of the KGB during the Cold War. And he's also done a number of other studies that have had great significance on the use and the abuse of intelligence and secret services in modern history. Um, he has the quite unique distinction of having written the two most important books, uh, both on Eastern and Western intelligence during the Cold War. Uh, KGB, the inside story of its foreign operations from Lenin to Gorbachev, which came out in 1990 uh, with Oleg Gadievsky. And for the president's eyes only, secret intelligence and the American presidency from Washington, from Washington to Bush, from 1995. And now he has written, who else could do it? The official history of the British Security Service, otherwise known as the MI5. The book is entitled The Defense of the Realm, which I take is a reference to the uh, Defense of the Realm Act of 1914, among other things. I'm sure Chris will uh, develop on that further. And it takes us through the history of the MI5 from its founding in 1909, through the World Wars, through the Cold War, and up to today's involvement with counterterrorism and other issues that are plaguing international society at present. It is a great pleasure to introduce you here tonight, Chris. We are very much looking forward to your lecture. Right. Uh, thank you very much, um, Arnie. This is the most self-serving photograph you're likely to see at any lecture in LSE. Uh, this is me. What is the reason for the strange expression on my face? Uh, the, the answer is I am the first person ever to be photographed entering MI5. Uh, why, am I <laughs> why am I looking a bit apprehensive? Because once I get in there, I, well, I was told there were going to be 400,000 files. So that's technically true. What I didn't realize is that those on so many people from Cambridge University uh, would have 50 volumes. So actually, it's more like uh, uh, several, uh, several million. I want to make um, uh, clear that um, inside um, MI5 headquarters, there are plenty of LSE as well as Cambridge graduates. But um, LSE and Cambridge have um, uh, traditionally uh, recruited in rather different ways. Uh, LSE has had a more conventional recruitment policy um, in um, uh, British, so far as British intelligence is concerned. In other words, LSE recruits tend to join the intelligence services of our own side. <laughs> no, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. This is, uh, once again, a case where Cambridge could learn from the LSE example. 
But Cambridge has, over the years, had a more cosmopolitan approach to intelligence <laughs> recruitment uh, than uh, uh, LSE. Uh, the KGB always, in other words, we have, I regret to say, recruited, um, sent some of our best people into the other side as well. Um, the KGB always regarded as the ablest group of foreign agents that it ever recruited, the so-called five, until the KGB uh, saw the most successful of all Westerns, in other words, the Magnificent Seven in 1960, and decided to call the best five Cambridge recruits the Magnificent uh, Five. What my book shows, however, and I hope this will shock um, um, those of us here this evening from uh, London University, is that all the five were recruited to the KGB by a psychology postgraduate at University College London uh, with one of the most uh, remarkable academic records in the history of London University. So it was all London's fault, really. Um, anyone who writes about intelligence is acutely aware that it's the only profession in which a fictional character is at least 100 times better known than anyone who actually worked for that profession at any time in the past or the present. And I'm referring, of course, to James Bond, whose films have been seen and mostly enjoyed by a majority of the world's population. And though that, of course, is not what MI5 does for most of the time, there have been a few real Bonds in MI5 history. And here's something that even Bond never tried. There we are. <laughs> so, um, uh, this was performed by MI5's most daredevil agent of the period before the Second World War. What you see on the screen, or most of the screen, is a perfectly ordinary and indeed boring old black and white photograph of Westminster Bridge. Until, that is, you cast your eye down almost to river level, and you see that a plane is about to fly underneath. Uh, that plane uh, underneath Westminster Bridge, that plane is piloted by a First World War fighter ace, uh, Christopher Draper, the so-called Mad Major. Uh, this was um, uh, because he had begun his First World War career before the Royal Air Force had been founded and before it had uh, uh, set up its, its own ranks. Um, now let's move on to the next one. There is Draper on the left, there is the Fuhrer on the right, and there are a couple of really boring German fighter aces uh, between the two. But um, one of the few ways in which um, a Brit was able to really impress the Fuhrer between the two world wars was by flying repeatedly under all London bridges. And uh, this is precisely what happened. As I suggest, there is something of more than anecdotal significance that happened as, uh, uh, as a result. So. Um, because of the Fuhrer's interest in people who could fly under all London bridges, he was actually invited to the Munich Air Show shortly before Adolf Hitler uh, became uh, Fuhrer. And he carried on talking to him, much like this, for about um, uh, 40 minutes. Uh, the two um, people in the middle, as I think I said, were um, German fighter aces. Uh, when Draper gets back to England, he is asked by German intelligence, uh, then the Abwehr, to spy on the Royal Air Force, which he immediately agrees to do, stopping only to ask if MI5, uh, MI5 if that's okay. And MI5 says that that is okay, so he becomes a double agent. Now, at one level, this is a fairly trivial story, uh, but it is through following Draper's contacts with German intelligence in the 1930s that MI5 learns um, which addresses in Germany to monitor 
and it's through monitoring those addresses that it um, uh, discovers those British subjects who really are spying for Hitler's Germany. And it's through identifying those uh, that it is able to turn the best of them around into the so-called double-cross system, which I think few people nowadays challenge is the most successful uh, deception in the entire history of warfare. So you can never tell where flying under London bridges will lead you to. But, of course, you don't begin to embark on a period of deception like that. Uh, unless you have uh, learned from previous track record. So uh, the British success in deceiving the Germans during the Second World War begins in the First World War, and it begins with this man. William, William Hinchley Cook. The um, only 20 uh, years of age, the first uh, World War I recruit of MI5, British father, German mother, educated in Germany, um, bilingual but spoke English with a German accent. Now, anyone who spoke English with a German accent at the beginning of the First World War uh, tended to have a fairly short survival rate. I mean, even those in London who had Daxons had um, a problem. Uh, but, uh, so in order to get into the war office business, It was, it was necessary for the, uh, the first head of MI5, uh, Vernon Kell, to actually put on the bottom of his pass, he is an Englishman. Not everyone believed him. Um, but, of course, he had two other identities. There we are. Uh, he was, um, his other identity was as a German officer. He posed as a POW during the um, uh, First World War. So far as we know, there isn't a single German POW who suspected that he might not um, uh, be working for the German side. And then he also had a third identity. There we are. Notice that it's the same photograph that appears on his pass to get into the, the, the war office. He has a pass as an alien, uh, a, enemy alien resident in London, Wilhelm Eduard Koch, and um, uh, that, again, is not um, suspected by any of the German civilian residents in London during the... Um, uh, the First World War. So what difference does this make? It's part of the um, British success, MI5 success, at the beginning of the First World War in um, uh, identifying and leading to the arrest of all the German spies in Britain. All the German spies in Britain of any significance. Uh, now that again sounds like, you know, it's a little technical detail in intelligence history. But it wasn't. How can I put this sensitively? I can't put it sensitively, so I'll simply explain what actually happened. The French had an unfortunate habit of being beaten by the Germans in six weeks. Um, uh, this, um, uh, this, uh, this happened in um, uh, 1870, this happened in 1940, and it damn well nearly happened in 1914. And as the French version of history, um, putting this as sensitively as I can, uh, the, the French were only not beaten in six weeks by the miracle of the Marne. But supposing that the Germans had known where the British expeditionary force was going to land at the beginning of the First World War, supposing they had known when it was going to land, well, it would have taken, I think, more than a miracle uh, for the Germans not to repeat um, their six-week victory. So um, uh, I think this was um, of importance. There we are, our first leader. Uh, 
He looks pretty boring, but um, one of the things that um, I think is quite difficult for students nowadays is to look at old pictures of old British gents and realize that even if they look boring, they could be really quite interesting. Look at this fellow. Who would guess, looking at the first head of um, MI5, appointed in 1909, that he was the best linguist ever to head any British intelligence agency, and I would dare to say any um, British government agency. Um, in 1909, when he joined at the age of 36, he had a translator's qualification in Russian. He had a translator's qualification in Chinese. And he could speak all the more boring European predictable uh, uh, languages as well. Now, this is the image that MI5 had of itself at the end of the, the First World War. In those days... Um, in this great country of ours, uh, people took real trouble over um, uh, their Christmas cards. They didn't just go to the nearest charity shop and produce a, a picture of a robin with a little bit of mistletoe uh, next to it. So you can't probably see it from where you are. Uh, but um, I'm moving away from the microphone, but I'm going to point to the bottom left-hand corner where it says EHWINV. This was a period when uh, you, using the Latin language was supposed to make your Christmas cards stand out from other people's uh, Christmas cards. So EHW uh, invented, EHW designed this. Who was EHW? He was the deputy head of MI5, and he carried on doing Christmas cards for another 30 years. And in the, in the bottom right-hand corner, it's got by I'm sure. He was the most expensive illustrator in uh, uh, Britain at the, um, uh, at the time. Now, what does it show? It shows MI5's self-image. It had already caught all the German spies. So it was now concerned with uh, catching uh, those people who were engaged in subversion against the British fighting man. Uh, look at that handsome young woman on the right-hand um, uh, side. Uh, she is a masked Britannia. Uh, she is MI5. How do we know that she is MI5? I'll move away from the microphone just to point out to you her secret, the secret monogram on the bottom of her trident. If ever you see a trident like that, you'll know that you're dealing with somebody from MI5. <laughs> this is MI Roman uh, V, and uh, what is she doing? Uh, she is stabbing in the back the loathsome figure of subversion. How do we know there was subversion? Well, many people in the audience are too young to remember what subversion really consisted of. But broadly, until the 1970s, it was people with long hair and excessive facial hair and if you ever saw somebody with that degree of body hair, cracky, you know, they would be bound to go to the LSE. Sorry, shouldn't have said that. <laughs> and what is this loathsome figure about to do? Um, he, because subversion is always male, um, subversion is about to stab in the back the British fighting man who, in order to raise his status, is uh, dressed as a, um, a Roman um, officer. Um, so that is the image which I think has pursued MI5 into the, uh, the Cold War. And as I'll say in a moment, um, I think it's um, entirely wrong. It, you know, um, uh, it's amazing the images from Christmas cards that can persist. MI5, during the First World War, was mainly composed of men who had some reason, usually patriotic reason, for not fighting on the Western Front or some other theater. In other words, they had had a bit knocked off them. Uh, which uh, made it difficult to continue combat. Now, but these were bright gents. They had to have really good languages to get into MI5. So for the first time in British history, they had the idea 
of having the most intelligent women in Britain work for them. The idea of having the most intelligent women in Britain work with them uh, would have to wait for a few more uh, 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 generations. Um, so where did they get the secretaries from? Well, MI5 did not have direct contact with the appointments um, services, the career services, at any of the um, uh, Britain's major universities. But so far as women were concerned, in the First World War, they already recruited direct from Royal Holloway, which was then a women's college. They already recruited direct uh, from um, uh, two of the Oxford women's colleges, and they already recruited direct from um, women's, uh, from the Cheltenham Ladies College. Now, what did this produce? It produced a moment in gender history, which only gender historians um, are so blind that they have not bothered to uh, uh, look at. I mean, all the way through British intelligence history, what you find is extraordinary opportunities uh, for people working in other fields, which they would have followed up had the word intelligence not been included. So British intelligence, I believe, is the... Uh, the, the way forward for gender historians. It will certainly lead to more interesting lives for them, I think. Um, so this is a cartoon that is, uh, well, not really a cartoon, but a drawing that uh, was done during the First World War, which shows a typical interaction between a gent who, as you can see, has had various bits knocked off him and um, is wearing a monocle and looks seriously bemused, um, and a, a bright young 20-something from Royal Holloway College. And it's, uh, the, 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 the caption is, Miss thinks she's right. Now, so this was the first period in British history in which women were able to explain to men in a lot of um, uh, uh, jobs in MI5. They haven't really got it right, um, but they understood it. Now, there, there were two kinds of uh, uh, men in MI5 during the First World War. Those who were outraged that a woman could understand something that they couldn't, and the others who were only too pleased that their secretary could understand the accounts, for example. So the financial controller, um, future financial planning, as well as current accounts in MI5 during the First World War, is a woman. The first person fem female to hold that post in British history. Now, it's a long and winding road which um, uh, leads from that to the appointment of, in Britain, in 1992, Stella Rivington as the first female head of any of the world's major intelligence agencies. But um, uh, the, world's, uh, the first place in Britain in which, the in which the glass ceiling was broken by women was actually in MI5, and at some point in this century or possibly the next, there will be some gender historian who finds that worth um, further um, uh, investigation. And here's one example. No, that's not the example I was looking at, but let me talk about it anyway. If you have um, uh, a lot of really bright 20-something um, uh, old women and um, a lot of slightly bemused uh, 40, 50-year-old gents, you get sometimes a somewhat flirtatious um, um, experience. So this is the, the invitation card to the uh, victory celebrations in MI5. Now, I am myself, for reasons that I won't seek to explain or even to convince you, I am an, um, uh, an honorary uh, Commodore. And if I were to give my cap or any part of uh, my um, uh, kit um, uh, to anybody else, I would be in serious breach of Queen's regulations. Now, this secretary had obviously got to know her boss extremely well uh, because um, she is wearing his cap, she is wearing his tunic, and she's combining this with the, uh, the shortest skirt available in London at the time. So 
Gender interaction um, in MI5 at the end of the First World War was more seriously exciting than it had ever been in any part of officialdom in British history. And those of um, the people interested in gender interaction, once again, I suggest that um, MI5 is a good place to look. Um, uh, so what MI5 still does, I'm not going to respond to any questions which suggest that I may be part of the annual reviews that take part in, in MI5. I'm not going to deny it, but I can answer no questions except to not deny that I am, and the next one is in a fortnight's time. But it all, begin, it all begins here. I mean, MI5 is actually the first organization in British history, I will be talking about failures, by the way, I really will be talking about failures, to identify that um, one of the things you should look for in new recruits in any form of officialdom is actually a sense of humor. Why? Because we all know it's easier getting on with people who have a sense of humor. But we also know if you're dealing with really, really desperate stuff like Islamist terrorism, for example, unless you have some sense of the ridiculous, you do not actually have the sense of proportion which allows you to uh, deal with it. So enough of that. Uh, now here's one example of uh, what could happen. Jane Archer, who if you look in Philby's memoirs, um, he um, identifies as probably the most uh, intelligent um, British intelligence officer of his generation. Uh, somebody who, slightly older than him, who um, uh, he believed was the only British intelligence officer if she was allowed to investigate his case might have worked out who he was. She was recruited in 1916 as a 16-year-old secretary direct from school. Here she is in 1924. What has happened over there eight, those eight years? She's qualified as a barrister, and in those eight years, she's become head of the Soviet section in MI5, which was, of course, the most important section in MI5 because the Soviet Union was the um, uh, most important threat. So, um, there's, um, uh, so what are the gents? There's some very interesting gents as well. Look at this fellow. <laughs> Quite so. Um, uh, some of the cover that has um, uh, been adopted by MO5 over the years, I think, has been brilliant. Uh, this is, <laughs> broadly speaking, next time you see somebody uh, walking into the old building with a parrot on his shoulder, <laughs> it could be one of us. Anyway, this is Maxwell Knight, BBC's first TV and radio uh, naturalist. But what uh, viewers and listeners did not know was that from the 1930s to the 1950s, he was MI5's leading agent runner. And visitors to his house in London, as one of them recalled, would, and I quote exactly, find him nursing a bush baby, feeding a giant toad, raising young cuckoos, or engaging in masculine repartee with a vastly experienced gray parrot. That is a parrot. But, uh, but again, I mean... Just of all the disguises that have been adopted by intelligence services over the ages, I think that uh, Maxwell Knight actually had the, uh, the most un unusual one. But anyway, um, well, I won't go on. He was the last buccaneer, I think, in service history, MI5 history, that I know about. In other words, if you want to do something interesting, he didn't ask permission from the Home Secretary, as everybody has, has done since. But with the assistance of the parrot, uh, the agents that he was running in the 1930s included the secretary to the, uh, the secretary general, the head of the British Communist Party, and uh, a series of senior fascist um, uh, officials. Now for the most um, uh, successful 
of the British, uh, the MI5 agents between the, uh, the wars. Only have a look on the right-hand side. The, um, uh, since he was not married, um, uh, the, the left-hand side is, is relevant. This is Putlitz. Um, he um, was uh, uh, um, a diplomat in the German embassy in London in the 1930s. He was run by Klopp Ustinov, the father of Peter Ustinov. And he persuaded as early as 1934 MI5 to read and take seriously something which, um, unless there's somebody in the uh, audience who knows better, and there may well be, to read and take seriously Mein Kampf. Now, um, MI5 did not take Mein Kampf seriously in a foolish sense. I mean, they didn't suppose that it represented any kind of program for what was going to happen. But what they did suppose, and what they repeatedly told uh, prime ministers, is that this was the best guide that uh, we had to Hitler's ultimate um, ambitions. Um, trying to get through to Neville Chamberlain, particularly at a point um, during the... Um, uh, the, the Munich crisis when MI6, SIS, was saying ex exactly the opposite thing was very difficult. Uh, Neville Chamberlain wrote r really supportive comments on um, uh, the SIS memorandum. Uh, he did not write any supportive comments. He did not write any comments at all on um, MI5 memoranda. So what do you do if, um, uh, if you wish to tell truth to power to a prime minister who does not listen? Well, the one thing which uh, British prime ministers and indeed heads of state, heads of government all over the world will always pay attention to is if you tell them that their main opponent um, is uh, insulting them. So um, uh, Vernon Kell, we saw his picture a little while ago. I mean, he was not um, uh, somebody with an expansive or extrovert personality. The only thing that he ever published was a little article, he was a bird watcher, on the life of the lapwing. Uh, but in, in uh, 1939, once uh, Neville Chamberlain had refused to listen to him, uh, he wrote a little memorandum uh, ask, telling the Prime Minister that Adolf Hitler repeatedly referred to him as, and I quote, in the interests of sensitive scholarship, an asshole. And uh, then, in order to make sure that he, uh, the Prime Minister um, knew the exact language which the Fuhrer was using, he used the German word as well. This was passed on. Uh, to the Prime Minister through the Foreign Secretary, Lord Halifax, who had never heard anybody um, of his acquaintance used, referred to in that kind of language. So by the time it reached the Prime Minister, and by the way, this is one of those documents which I didn't get from MI5 archives, which has lain undisturbed in, uh, the, in queue for uh, quite a number of years. Lord Halifax underlined three times in red the word asshole. <laughs> which I believe is a unique example of telling truth's power. Right. Uh, now, um, I wouldn't necessarily disagree with Hitler's... Oh, well, I'll go to that. <laughs> now, the beginning of the Second World War, here was the problem. MI5 was a very small organization. In beginning in 1938, it only had 30 officers and 100 other staffs. At the beginning of the Second World War, it suddenly had to expand incredibly rapidly. Now, there weren't an awful lot of places in which you could suddenly expand tremendously rapidly, with the exception of this place. That's it. Um, um, uh, those of you who have had uh, troubled experiences with the law will immediately recognize this as Wormwood Scrubs. Um, so that is where MI5 had to move into at the beginning of the Second World War. Um, the, the, uh, the, the female staff may be looking cheerful, but um, uh, that is because they've forgotten what happened on day one, which is they moved in to the cell so rapidly that um, uh, the prisoners had forgotten or decided not to empty their chamber pots. Um, and that is what life was life for nine months 
in MI5 at the beginning of the Second World War. They worked in cells. And it worked perfectly well until uh, visitors came to see them and then closed the door on the way out because, of course, the, the, the <laughs> their only handles are the outside, not on the inside. But anyway, they got used to spending the night in, inside. Um, and then there was the Blitz, and um, they had to move to Blenheim Palace. And that is why uh, one former member of MI5 who remembers uh, this period has accurately summarized it to me as from prison to palace. But, as I hope I've already um, demonstrated, MI5 women were, uh, always have been, still remain a pretty lively lot. So when they moved into the backwaters of one of the older British universities, I'm referring to Keeble College, Oxford, um, they were a bit too lively for Keeble College, Oxford. No, that's, um, that's Vernon Kell just about before he was about to get sacked after 31 years as head of MI5. Winston was wonderful at sacking people. No, uh, Kell had lasted 31 years, which was the longest that anybody in the 20th century lasted as head of any uh, uh, British government department or agency. But here is the problem that Keeble College, Oxford, had. Yes, that is the problem. You probably can't read it, but I will read it um, out. Um, dinner time uh, in MI5, as I know, is very lively. Uh, these are very lively people. Uh, but um, uh, the problem was uh, that the liveliness um, in 1940-41 was such that um, uh, they were breaking far too much of the crockery. So what you probably can't read, but uh, you will find in my book, and um, you might just be able to make out, is um, the reply of MI5 when told that um, uh, MI5 was breaking ten times as much crockery per woman as um, uh, um, Keeble College was students were breaking per man. And so the, the, the third paragraph uh, reads, this is MI5 really taking offense at what the bursar was saying at Keeble College, Oxford. It is difficult to envisage that, amongst other things, our staff have broken 28 large coffee pots, 740 plates of all sorts, and 140 dishes of all sorts in the dining room unless there has been a free fight. <laughs> I have read the records of MI5. I don't find it difficult to believe at all. But, um, anyway, uh, let's move on. Yes, uh, that's, uh, he's in the wrong place. Uh, that is Juan Pujol, uh, the best British double agent of the Second World War, who would not have been able to um, achieve what he did uh, without uh, the mad um, uh, major. And so uh, this is when he was finally recognized 40 years after the Second World War, uh, 40 years after he had been um, uh, given, I can't tell the difference between an OBE and an MBE, but I know it's one of those, when he was invited in by the Duke of Edinburgh to be congratulated on shortening the, um, uh, the Second World War. No, I've not left myself time to talk more about that. Um, that's his um, uh, MI5 case officer, who, um, uh, despite being a close uh, friend of Thomas Harris, a uh, close friend of, of, um, guy of um, Anthony Blunt, uh, was, I mean, they made a brilliantly successful duo. But why did they make a, a brilliantly successful duo? I don't want to reduce it simply to a sense of the ridiculous. Uh, but um, what the, the messages that they sent to the up there uh, were ridiculous beyond belief, but they were, they were, they were sent by really creative, ridiculous people. So I, I've, there's just time to um, um, point out uh, one message that was sent by uh, Thomas Harris, who was, of course, doing it with, uh, even though his name was men never mentioned, by Juan Pujol. Uh, immediately after um, Garbo, Juan Pujol, 
has succeeded in persuading Hitler in person, and not simply the high command, uh, that uh, the D-Day landings on the 6th of June 1944 uh, in Normandy are simply uh, distractions from uh, the, real, um, uh, the real attack, which is coming, or put in another way, is never going to come in the obvious place, um, uh, the Calais, the region around um, uh, Calais. Um, the, the Juan Pujol is awarded the Iron Cross, and he, um, yeah, on the personal instructions of the Fuhrer, and um, his, his reply to um, uh, the affair is at this moment, I am so overcome by emotion that I cannot put my emotions into words. Why could he not put his emotions into words? Because he was rolling around on the floor absolutely helpless with laughter. And it was two days before he could um, uh, talk again with any semblance of incredibly. So they had quite a good time um, uh, fooling the, uh, the Fuhrer. Now we will move on with incredible speed because I'm running out of time. No, we won't do that one. Uh, that's the, um, uh, except for me to say that this is the most important um, agent network ever run inside the United Kingdom. It was run by the Apfair, J in the middle, uh, is Garbo. Uh, they were all figments of Garbo's imagination. Now, oh, this is sinister stuff, folks. It has often been alleged uh, that MI5 um, uh, during the Cold War uh, was uh, obsessed with finding Reds underbeds and quite often finding them in beds and uh, attempted to explain to supine governments that um, uh, there were reds under all kinds of government beds. And this appears to um, uh, uh, prove it. Uh, if you look at, um, uh, at the top, you will see it says Sir Roger Hollis. Sir Roger Hollis was for nine years uh, the director general of MI5. And then down the, the, the left-hand side, it appears to say 18 in the bottom left-hand corner, but it actually means um, 16. Uh, there are 16 Labour MPs who are believed to be uh, members of the Communist Party. It's got CP on the bottom left-hand side. And then on the right-hand side, it's got possibles, nine more. But actually, having found that document, uh, what I've really discovered is it actually reverses um, uh, the usual explanation. In other words, it was successive governments who from time to time hyperventilated over, um, and sometimes successive oppositions, who hyperventilated over uh, the, uh, the problems of subversion. So this is not an MI5 document. The reason that it has Sir Roger Hollis at the top and the House of Commons on the right is that on the personal instructions of Hugh Gateskill and George Brown, it was brought by Patrick Gordon Walker shortly to become uh, Labour Home uh, Foreign Secretary for um, a short period. So it's the Labour Party who since from 1945 right up to the point at which Harold Wilson uh, becomes uh, Labour leader um, is preoccupied by the, leaf, uh, by the belief that um, uh, there are communist penetration within Labour benches. Uh, look at the bottom uh, top left-hand corner. MI5 refused to get involved because they just thought that this was silly Labour Party politics and it was not wrong. Uh, but it also believed that none of these people were of any serious significance whatever, but it made one serious mistake. Top left-hand corner, those who are sitting in the front um, two or three rows, but I think nobody behind, it says WOM, Will Owen MP for Morpeth. He had been for the past seven years an agent of the Czechoslovak Intelligence Service, and he so remained. Uh, until he was prosecuted, he was, um, his, his, uh, his reputation was destroyed, but he, he, he got away with it. He was one of three uh, Labour Party um, uh, MPs 
who was actually a Soviet bloc agent. Now, for something I haven't left my time to, myself time to talk about. Um, no, he wasn't. Um, H. Davis was. Uh, was oh, he's another one. No, no, he was. Um, he was just a bit peculiar. Uh, he wasn't. <laughs> he wasn't an, an, an agent. The other two were Bob Edwards and John Stonehouse. Um, John Stonehouse, of course, was a, um, a minister and very seriously uh, peculiar. I've not let myself talk about um, Harold Wilson. Uh, the extract in the Times has talked about him, but I, I'll just say one thing. I mean. I think anybody um, looking back at the career of Harold Wilson now uh, can reasonably regard as a tragedy. I mean, arguably the most intelligent, the most talented person ever to become uh, peacetime prime minister of uh, the United Kingdom. Uh, but from the moment that he becomes prime minister, there's already um, uh, this tendency towards um, a conspiracy theory. And at the beginning, I mean, what was reasonable to suppose uh, was that um, the Conservatives were waiting for with far worse Profumo cases uh, than uh, Jack Profumo himself, and a party which contained uh, Tom Dryberg, uh, for example, as party chairman, had good reason uh, to, uh, to believe that. So here's, here's just one example, and then I'll have to skip the, the rest. Um, uh, 1964, uh, I have spoken to, um, uh, indeed interviewed, and quoted in my book, one of the garden girls, Anne Kickle. Uh, when, as I hope she appears um, fairly soon on television, she will make a particular impression because she will be wearing a dog collar. She is now the Reverend Anne Kickle. Now, uh, the, you know, only Harold, I think, would have, have chosen George Week as, in effect, his national security advisor in 1964 uh, with uh, an office in number 10. Why did he choose him? Well, because he was convinced that the conservatives were out to uh, produce more perfumers. So in the first week, Anne Kiggle, then one of the garden girls, in other words, the secretaries in that nice room uh, overlooking the, uh, the number 10 garden, there was a, a large envelope which came down, just like other large envelopes sent from other people in number 10 to the Prime Minister, except this one had on it, for I believe the first time in the history of number 10, not to be opened by any female staff. And, of course, they opened it immediately. Uh, they, uh, they drew out a large A4 black-and-white photograph which showed a gent in public life who they immediately recognized but had never previously seen without his trousers. Uh, attempting to undo the stays, this was Edwardian pornography, of a woman who they did not recognize. Now, to appoint as your national security advisor, someone who was later done for curb crawling and who was extremely well known to the vice squad at the Curzon Hotel, begins to let one into the tragedy that was the Wilson era, which does not take away the extraordinary achievements of um, the first uh, ministry. Oh, yes. Uh, that's... I'm uh, about to say this is how MI5 kept um, uh, track of people from uh, uh, Trinity College, Cambridge. But no, and this was not the main, uh, the main purpose. Uh, this is the first photograph ever publicly revealed of an observation post by MI5. On the left-hand side, you can see uh, photographs of the people it was supposed to check on. Uh, these would be mainly um, uh, Soviet bloc um, officials and agents, and on the right-hand uh, side, um, somewhat obscured, uh, you can see the blackboard on which they wrote their names. Now, what were they looking at? Well, uh, mainly Soviet bloc intelligence agents, but from time to time, they were looking at senior Communist Party uh, officials uh, who um, were in contact with Soviet uh, agents. And this is the fearful um, uh, Betty Reed. Um, who was uh, the senior member of the Communist Party who was in, in charge of identifying people whose uh, ideological positions were less than correct. 
uh, you can imagine disputing your ideological position with uh, uh, Betty Reid. Um, oh, yeah, well, that's just another Soviet defector. Oh, yes, and this is the plans that he uh, revealed for um, uh, an attack on the, the North Yorkshire coast, but I haven't got time to talk about attacks on the North Yorkshire coast. Wouldn't have worked anyway. Uh, Oh, yes, and this is in 1971. Uh, the only reason, I mean, the point, the first point at which MI5 began to be able to deal with Soviet intelligence was when it persuaded the Heath government to kick 105 of them out, which is the most that anybody had ever persuaded any government to um, uh, kick out. So we turned absolutely overnight from being a soft target into a hard target. Oh, yes, this is the levels of fitness which are normally required in, um, in MI5. Um, but I put them there, partly because I've forgotten what picture I put there. Uh, but um, uh, these are uh, the, um, uh, one of the rare occasions in which the MI5 cricket team against a team too secret to mention, for example, but not necessarily MI6, uh, scored um, an unbroken 100 partnership. And the man in the back with the, uh, the long hair and looking a little bit by, uh, subversive was the, later became the first Cambridge PhD to become Director General of MI5. That's the Stephen Lander who had the idea of uh, doing the book that um, uh, I have uh, just written, and Sir Patrick Walker, um, also who engaged in this unbroken 100 uh, partnership, um, uh, also became head of uh, uh, MI5. Um, it's difficult now, you know, in a period when um, uh, cricketing analogies are no longer used and when people who never played baseball don't understand it, talking about getting a fur base. Uh, to remember how much the English language has been impoverished uh, by, not, uh, by the absence of phrases like keeping a straight bat. Uh, but these are the kind of phrases that we used for better or for worse, and I would say better in um, MI5. Right. Now, uh, I've left myself very little time, so all that I have time to do is to change your views, which I think I can do, I hope I can do, in only five minutes, about MI5 has dealt with counterterrorism. I mean, the, there's this absurd idea that it's somehow been preoccupied by the fact that Muslims are subversive. Not at all. I mean, the first um, uh, terrorists that uh, MI5 became obsessed by were Menachem Begin, uh, Irgun, and the Stone Gang immediately after the Second World War. What is not generally known is that after blowing up uh, the headquarters in Jerusalem of the British Mandate, in other words, the King uh, David Hotel, and then blowing up halfway to London, the British Embassy in Rome, um, this woman, Betty Knut, um, uh, actually planted a bomb of equal size in Whitehall, but um, uh, she failed to uh, do the priming mechanism, so it failed to, uh, to go off. Um, then another thing which is not realized, MI5, uh, for historical reasons, which I have not let myself talk about, did not actually have the lead role against the IRA uh, in the mainland of the United Kingdom until 1992. This is why the biggest operation it ever had against uh, the IRA until 1992, not in the British mainland, it was actually in Gibraltar, and this is Siobhan O'Hannon who was preparing uh, an attack on a very soft target, which would undoubtedly have succeeded had she not, as you can see, been under surveillance. Uh, and she didn't believe in uh, wearing inconspicuous clothing or inconspicuous hairstyle, as you, as you can see. Uh, so that's the target, the British garrison in, in, in Gibraltar. And um, uh, that is the, um, on one of the days that she was in Gibraltar, uh, the map that was uh, uh, taken by um, MI5 uh, surveillance branch. 
A4 of where she went. She was respected as someone who believed in the righteousness of her homicidal cause. So on the top left-hand side, you can see the Roman Catholic Cathedral where she went to light a candle and to say a prayer. Now, I've just left myself time to move up to the uh, 21st uh, uh, century. Um, MI5 took too long in my judgment, to realize that uh, the main threat for the 21st century is going to be holy terror. Why? Because it didn't read um, uh, Bruce Hoffman, who took a long view, which is, of course, nothing that any banker in uh, the city of London did until about um, a couple of years ago. So it's not a, a unique um, uh, problem. But Bruce worked out by the middle of the, uh, the 1990s that the problem of the 21st century uh, was going to be holy terror, holy Islamist uh, terror. Uh, what is not realized is that the first uh, Al-Qaeda uh, uh, attempt to create a British bomb factory was actually a year before 9-11. Uh, this is the man, uh, Moinul uh, Abedin, who claimed uh, when he was brought to court that he was just trying to set up a fireworks business but failed to convince the, uh, uh, the jury, although God knows some juries would have been convinced by it. Um, uh, this is the first really major uh, attack after 9-11. This is Operation Crevice. On the right-hand side is the British Islamist leader, Omar Khayyam, who couldn't work out the bomb detonators, the electronic bomb detonators he needed to destroy uh, London clubs and shopping centers, so had to call in the Canadian uh, Mohammed Mohim Kawaja, who is also serving a very long term in prison at the time in the hope that he could get those detonators off him. They are the past. This is the future. This is Darren Barrett, who, uh, as you see, is called Field Study. That was the code name at the time. His ultimate ambition was to explode a radioactive dirty bomb in the center of London. Now, uh, without being too scary about it, there are only two possibilities. One, that nobody will try that again, which is improbable, uh, given that Osama bin Laden, uh, one of the great blasphemers of modern times, uh, declared the religious duty of uh, Islamists, well he just said Muslims but of course he meant Islamists, um, uh, to um, uh, gain the ability um, to use weapons of mass destruction uh, against Jews and Crusaders um, with the Crusaders. Uh, so there are only two possibilities. He will be the last person to do it or he won't be the last person to do it. Or he won't be the last person to do it. He is the future. Um, uh, what can we learn about past experience? Well, this is very self-serving. Um, in order to persuade um, uh, colleagues in Cambridge who don't pay any attention to history, uh, that they should pay attention to history, I've invented an acronym which I make no <laughs> excuse for using this evening. It's HASD, H-A-S-D-D, Historical Attention Span Deficit Disorder. All those people in the late 20th century who saw the problems of the 21st century most clearly, not a banker amongst them, were those who took a long-term perspective. Taking a long-term perspective about Darren Barrett gives us an insight, in, I think, into what we will be facing over the next 30 years. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Chris, for um, that exciting, spirited overview of the history of the MI5. 
Before I try to needle Chris with the first question of the evening, let me apologize, speaking of attention deficit, um, to my colleagues in international history for not mentioning at the outset that this uh, meeting is a co-production between LSE Ideas and the Department of International History. Um, the attention deficit comes from chairing far too many meetings in here today, including one in which the Chinese Embassy was very worried about the potential of egg-throwing Tibetans. Um, Chris, on the work, I mean, there's an enormous amount of work that's gone into this 1,000-page, almost 1,100-page book. When you did get access to the, to the files, and you had a pretty free reign of them, um, and you got into writing and you started leafing through all of this, what was it that surprised you most? Uh, that's a really difficult question. Is this working? Yeah, sorry. Yes, it is working. Uh, because um, uh, practically every day I would think, oh, I didn't know that. And um, uh, then the, the next day or the day after, I would think, oh, I don't know that either. And um, uh, so my uh, sense of what really surprised me um, kept being um, uh, changed. I think that looking at it at a strategic level, uh, it was what I hinted at, but like everything that I said, didn't leave myself time to develop. Uh, the fact that... Um, uh, those uh, people in uh, official positions who were really exercised by subversion it was not actually MI5, uh, but it was the government. And the second thing that surprised me, because th this happens repeatedly year after year after year, in other words, it's not just a single surprise, and that the real effect of listening in to uh, uh, the, the leadership of the British Communist Party for most of the Cold War is actually to calm people down in government. Why? Not always, uh, because the, um, uh, the in, in appalling election rigging of, um, of the electoral trades unions uh, elections, not simply those in the, in, in the 1950s and so on. I mean, this is really serious stuff. But what does one really, what did the government really learn? I mean, they just learned how incompetent and irrelevant the British Communist Party was at a political level, not at an industrial level but at um, a, 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 a political uh, level. And then secondly, uh, the other thing that I think I, I learned is um, uh, the effect that it had on British um, uh, decolonization. Um, you know, the, the, I, I think if I'd left myself time for another conclusion, it would have been, but I hope it was implicit in what I had to say, that uh, the intelligence dimension of British history has an importance which stretches far beyond those who have uh, some kind of specialized interest in intelligence. The mere idea of writing subjects as apparently remote uh, from intelligence as gender history or decolonization without mentioning the role of MI5 doesn't strike me as very sensible. On the other hand, there's a whole generation of graduate students who are only too grateful uh, that their elders, but not necessarily betters, did not do this because, of course, of course the gaps of one generation uh, provide the main research opportunities for the next generation. But let me, let me give um, uh, one uh, uh, example. Um, there is, if he's in the audience, he'll, um, he's, I won't recognize him, and therefore he'll forgive me for describing his next book. This is Calder Walton's book on uh, uh, British intelligence and decolonization is, is absolutely brilliant. That's a relatively restrained description, I can imagine. Uh, uh, reviewers going uh, some way uh, beyond that. So what happens 
when the British government is confronted by MI5 with what it's listening to, for example, on Jomo Kenyatta. Well, Jomo Kenyatta looked fairly suspicious even before uh, Mama because he was known to have gone to the Lenin School in Moscow. He was known to have been uh, uh, taught the, the black arts of, uh, of, of various kinds. But what was not known was his response uh, to his experience in Moscow, uh, which um, was essentially to uh, decide they didn't want anything to do with it again. Uh, so here's a characteristic conversation, which I believe to be true. While he was in Moscow in the early 1930s and becoming extremely alienated uh, from life in Moscow, uh, the brilliant young black uh, Secretary General of the South African Communist Party said to him, you're just a pretty bourgeois to which uh, Jomo Kenyatta said, not so much of the petty bourgeois, call me a big bourgeois. Now, when the British government was able to hear uh, the leadership of the British Communist Party saying, after all we have done for Jomo Kenyatta, after all we have done for Kwame Nkrumah, look at what they're saying now. This was deeply reassuring. So if the British government had not had access to what the comrades were saying, in King Street. They might actually have uh, believed that the British Communist Party represented some kind of threat at anything other than an uh, industrial rebel level. So um, I think it was the reversal of uh, uh, the normal interpretation of the obsession with uh, subversion. And then secondly, uh, the way that uh, the most frequent intelligence uh, produced by MI5 um, during the, uh, the Cold War, listening in to the, the comrades, actually was deeply reassuring uh, to successive British governments, Labour and Conservative. There's one thing that has struck me, Chris. I've been editing for the last few years a Cambridge history of the Cold War in which Chris has the overall chapter on intelligence. That's because how much that still needs to be done on incorporating intelligence history into general history of international affairs. And Chris and, and other people working with him have taken the first steps on doing that, but there's still really a lot that must be done. Other questions from the audience? Yes, over in the corner there. We start over there. Um, Dame Stellard's uh, leveled a charge Sorry. against you. Okay. Dame Stellard's leveled a charge against you of what might be called HBHS, uh, historic, historian's benefit of hindsight syndrome that she uh, thinks, taken slight umbrage, she seems to be slightly riled in her review in the FT that, uh, about your very mild criticism about uh, MI5 being slow to see the coming menace of Islamist terrorism. I mean, did you feel at all, I mean, it's fairly mild, but did you feel at all constrained by the fact that this was an authorized uh, history of MI5. I mean, you had to be vetted, you were recruited in, whether that was in an honorary capacity or whatever. Uh, did you feel constrained, not just in what you could write, but in the judgments that you actually and the, made and the conclusions you came to? Very good. We'll take one more question over, over in that corner. Yes, the lady right in front there. Um, you say um, MI5 were not prepared for Islamic terrorism, and if Darren Barrett is the future, how am I five preparing for that future as a long-term strategy? Right, to respond to those two, two questions, any historian who does not use historical hindsight should be sacked immediately. That is the first thing that I would say. Um, otherwise, I think um, I haven't yet um, uh, read the review. I haven't had time to uh, uh, read the, um, uh, the review. Uh, but um, uh, Stella Remington, in all, all kinds of ways, I thought was... Um, 
rather an effective head of, um, of MI5, with the single exception of her failure to use historical hindsight. Um, as, um, so far as the, uh, how MI5 is preparing, I would like to s say how I think it is, is preparing. I mean, the only way to prepare for anything really important is to take a long-term view. Now, let me take uh, a long-term view, which I've got from colleagues who has historical span and whose uh, anthropological and uh, uh, archaeological span go uh, far further back th than mine. Um, subject to anything that anyone knows um, here tonight, uh, I think there are only two constants in human history over the last uh, 20,000 years. The, one the first one is obviously um, human nature. I mean, there is no credible evidence known to me, or no credible evidence uh, known to archaeologists and prehistorians to whom I've spoken, uh, that human nature has changed uh, at all. So in other words, the idea of the 21st century would be the first century without Hitler's, without Pol Pot's, without Joseph Stalin's, without Mao Zedong's. Ah, rubbish. Uh, the great advance of the 21st century, however, is that they no longer have um, much chance uh, for the foreseeable future of becoming the heads of state. But there is still going to be that minority of fanatics, as they've always been in every previous century, who believe that uh, the correct response to dealing with people who think uh, differently to them is as much extermination uh, as they can manage. The only other constant I can think of over the last 20,000 years is that all human inventions, without any exception, without any possible exception, um, have um, uh, spread around the world. Now, the idea that weapons of mass destruction will be the only invention in the entire history of the human race not to spread around the world is a proposition that is so improbable that I really find real difficulty in taking it in. Uh, so what should MI5 be doing uh, to recognize the inevitability of these long-term trends? I'm talking um, uh, for, for myself. And slowing them down as far as possible. And then, of course, the only um, uh, ultimate solution, uh, as with global warming, is uh, uh, for a technological breakthrough which will change uh, the balance of power. But you, know, you, you don't deal with any serious problem by denial, which is the way that uh, Neville Chamberlain attempted to deal with Adolf Hitler. You deal with any incredibly intractable problem by recognizing that it exists. And before you find the solution, what can you do? You slow it down and then you try and slow it down for as, uh, as long as it's necessary to find a, a more radical um, uh, solution. Um, so um, uh, if I were asked to give MI5 advice, uh, that is the advice I would give. Uh, no, yes, no, I've answered both questions. So yes, other questions? There's one at the back over there. Keep your hands right so I can see them. Yes, sir. I'll turn to the people upstairs in a little while. Yep. Uh, David Lee, in his Guardian review on Saturday, um, basically, he, he was, of course, who, who wrote the Wilson plot 20 years ago. Well, I'm just saying, he, he, he says in his review like, um, that you kind of imply that there was indeed a MI5 faction plotting against Harry Wilson without, act without actually saying so. So I was just interested in your, you know, your comments on what, what, what you thought David Lee was you know, saying, about, obviously, about you and, and what, you, what you wrote about, about the Wilson issue. Thank you. Another question down here? Yes, over here on the side. Just wait for the microphone, please. Yeah. Just curious as to your view on the Mussolini revelation of earlier this week. Sorry? The Mussolini revelation. Oh, yes. Yeah, happy to talk about Mussolini. Mm -hmm. um, so um, Harold Wilson and Mussolini are an um, uh, interestingly diversified um, uh, pair. Uh, 
old conspiracy theories never die. Um, uh, the ones about Harold Wilson don't even uh, die uh, away. It is perfectly true that I don't say that there was a Harold Wilson plot. It is actually true to say that there was not a Harold Wilson plot. On the other hand, um, uh, those people who've regarded it as an article of faith for about um, um, 20 or 30 years um, do not find that a, um, a comfortable um, uh, uh, message. But, you know, if anybody in the audience thinks that there is any credible evidence that there was a plot against um, Harold Wilson, A, I would be surprised, but please um, uh, now, uh, now, uh, now declare it. I mean, I mean, the, the, the only credible source, uh, is, or the, the least incredible source, is Peter Wright. Uh, Peter Wright, uh, uh, who, by the uh, way, I hope the book demonstrates, simply fabricated evidence. You know, it, it, if one was looking for the most unreliable um, uh, first-hand witness in the entire history of British intelligence, I don't know why one would look uh, other than um, at, uh, at Peter Wright. But, you know, when he first produced um, his book in, uh, 19, in, in 1997, um, uh, it had uh, an extraordinary impact. But what I hope that I have shown is that uh, he fabricated evidence. He was the least popular person in MI5. The mere, you know, the mere suggestion that he could get anybody else in MI5 to plot with him against anything um, is so deeply improbable that I'm not even sure that um, uh, uh, David Lee has suggested that. What does he say even in his memoirs? He says that during his final few years, and he actually um, resigned uh, from MI5, or rather retired from MI5, at exactly the same time as Harold, poor Harold, um, had um, uh, finally had enough and, and retired. He said he was simply going through the motions. Well, folks, if you are becoming the first intelligence officer in British history to plot against a British prime minister, you have to do a little bit more than going through the motions. And also, you have to have some proven capacity for um, uh, persuading uh, somebody else to uh, agree with you. So, uh, you know, there are still people who believe that aliens have landed in the United States. Um, uh, there are still a huge proportion of Americans who believe that 9-11 um, uh, uh, was a plot that was orchestrated uh, by the, the CIA and Mossad. And there are still people who believe that there was a plot against Harold Wilson. There is nothing I can do to help them. Um, uh, uh, Mussolini, yes, well, MI5 um, made a few bad decisions. And who was the person who made the most um, uh, bad um, uh, decisions? Yes, it was the, it was the, um, uh, the future uh, foreign, uh, foreign secretary um, who um, was um, uh, the head of the MI5, in, in, in effect, uh, MI6 uh, station in, um, in Italy at the end of the uh, First World War. And what uh, my colleague Peter Martland says is um, in The Guardian and um, elsewhere is absolutely right. And you will find it in smaller detail in the book. Um, the idea that um, uh, uh, Italy might change sides, absurd though it may now seem, was regarded as credible at the time. And he was paid the preposterous amount of 100 pounds um, uh, a week to try and persuade Italians to do something which they were never going to do. Uh, that is to say, so start um, fighting seriously on the side of, um, uh, of Germany. Uh, but he managed to, after all, over the next 10 years, to fool a lot of Italians. So it's not too surprising uh, that he should have managed to uh, uh, fool the future Lord um, uh, Templewood. Uh, anyway, what has been published uh, recently about uh, uh, Mussolini is wholly right 
uh, what has been um, uh, produced uh, or published um, in the, uh, the Guardian. I will, will give just one other example. The, the most original review of my book that I've seen is the review, reduced um, uh, um, uh, MI, uh, the, the reduced history, what's it called, the reduced something of, uh, of my book in the Guardian. It's absolutely brilliant. It was complete nonsense. Now, I've been having difficult, of course it's complete nonsense. It's meant to be funny. It's meant to be witty. But there are parts of the Guardian in which a sense of humor disappeared about 30 years ago. And so uh, there is a fine young person in the Guardian, she could be a fine old person, uh, for all I know, who's been um, asking me for the last two days to um, uh, comment on, lead, on readers' objections to things, for example, which suggest that but for MI5, they would have been, if MI5 had been listened to, there would have been no Second World War. And anyway, Jack Jones was not a Martian and all this kind of stuff. Um, I have been attempting to say to her that, look, this was meant as a joke. The reduced uh, version of books in The Guardian, these are meant to be witty. And she says, she sends to me um, emails which say, look, this is what it says, and um, you were the author of the book, um, so please correct it. Uh, I reply, I didn't write the reduced history. I think it was rather funny. I think it was wholly ludicrous. But, and then she says, no, we, Guardian readers have been writing in, emailing in, uh, to say whether um, it is really true uh, that um, oh, this, that, and, and the other. So uh, watch this space. I have written an entirely humorless response uh, for, 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 for tomorrow, uh, which says that, oh, anyway. Um, uh, so um, um, uh, uh, Mussolini, absolutely right. Um, Harold Wilson, conspiracy theory, ludicrously wrong. So in other words, we have to look at the Guardian to get the, the next version of the story, the authorized version of the story. Questions from upstairs? Anyone? They're all leaving. Are there so? Questions down here? Yes. Uh, hi. I wanted to know how, do you, how you would assess the current government's response to Islamic terrorism. How would you do that for yeah, the, how do I assess the government's response to current Islamist terrorism? Well, it's a bit late. Um, uh, I mean, again, I, I hope that one of the, um, the answers that come across from the, the book is that um, Western culture, and not simply MI5, but I'm not seeking to let um, MI5 off the, uh, off the hook, where it's got things wrong is by not taking the long-term view. Um, I will answer the, uh, the question, but without understanding why it got things so wrong about um, uh, the IRA, I think it's not uh, credible to understand why it got things initially so wrong about Islamist terrorism. Now, in the whole of the MI5 archives, I have not found for the 1970s, it may be there, but I've looked at quite a lot, uh, I've not found a single document which um, looks at what happened in the previous troubles, in other words, uh, between the Easter Rising and the establishment of the Free State in 1922. What did happen? Um, British military uh, intelligence didn't put its act together, didn't particularly put its act together with police intelligence, and nobody worked out why the Metropolitan Intelligence Agencies, in particular MI5 and MI6, should play a role. What happened in the 1970s? Exactly the same thing. Now, you know, uh, one of the supreme examples of um, uh, the historical platitude, which, like most historical platitudes, is correct, is that those who do not understand past mistakes are doomed to repeat them, happens in Ireland in, in, in the 1970s. Now, in the 1990s, 
Um, some people got it right, but they were people outside government in the United States and in Britain who took a long-term view. Bruce Hoffman. I mean, look at what he was saying in articles in 1995, let alone in his book Inside Terrorism in 1998. He accurately identified what he called holy terror, which is what he meant uh, Islamist terror, as the problem of the early 21st century. The problem was uh, that um, uh, uh, people in government and in intelligence agencies dealing with day-to-day -day problems. Uh, didn't have um, uh, the time to say, oh, look, why don't I take a couple of months off and read Bruce Hoffman? Um, but I would say that um, even though it took longer than it, it should, uh, that it was, for example, not until 2003 that MI5 grasped that um, uh, the um, Islamist terrorist threat in Britain was actually directed against British targets and not simply or mainly at overseas targets since then, um, so far as we can see, which is of course not 100%. Um, it's done pretty well. Now, let us take what happened last month. Last month was the most important terrorist trial by absolutely none in the whole of British history. What was it? It was the uh, Operation Overt trial. Uh, it was the plot by a series of Islamist terrorists three years ago which have disturbed our air, um, air, uh, travels ever since, uh, to plant um, uh, bombs um, with uh, um, uh, suicide bombers on seven uh, um, flights which were taking off from Heathrow um, to North American cities, five of them uh, American, two of them uh, Canadian, in a three-hour period, and um, with the perfectly credible ways of, of destroying them. Now, if that had happened, and I think the, the prosecution uh, was entirely correct in what it said. That would have been uh, British 9-11, and if some of the, um, uh, the explosions had taken place over North American cities, it would have actually been worse than 9-11. Uh, it's only in 10 years' time that we will know how successful the British government and MI5 has, uh, has been, because it's entirely possible uh, that there are other Islamist plots which have not been detected, which uh, might turn out to be even worse. Well, on the evidence known to us, um, uh, yeah, the reason why, there are only pos two possible reasons why there's not been a British 9-11. There was, alas, a British 7-7. But the only two possible reasons that is Osama bin Laden and his fellow travelers decided they wouldn't bother to do it. And the other is that they did decide to do it, and they failed to do it. And part of the reason, the second is obviously right. And part of the reason why they failed to do it is that MI5 was actually working, as far as I can see, fairly well. Down here. Heather, why don't you go first and then we'll take the gentleman on Thank you very much. Um, just a very quick question. You mentioned MI5 were involved in investigating the IRA campaign in Gibraltar, but what about the IRA campaign in Germany? Um, were they also involved in investigating that? And were they also responsible for the Irish Republic or not? Um, which leads me to the question, if they were, why were, why were they so weak? They, they missed the assassination of the British ambassador. They missed the Mountbatten plot. Um, so any sort of explanations for that? Yes. I'll turn to you next. Yes. Um, Professor, you've been lucky enough to get access. Oh, sorry. Um, Professor, you've been lucky enough to get access to the archive in yeah. a way that um, probably the majority of us won't ever. Um, and I'm wondering, um, uh, given that... Um, I'm wondering what your views are on the archive itself in terms of um, what you think material get, stays in, what goes, gets left out, 
in terms of the processes by which those materials actually get filtered and put into the archive and, and how that process that MI5 itself goes through shapes the kinds of responses and histories that you are actually capable of producing in the first place. Very good. Another question down here. Yes. Uh, can I just uh, possibly have your views on why the British uh, MI5 and the CIA got it intelligence so fundamentally wrong regarding the uh, weapons of mass destruction that led to the Iraq war and obviously what would, what's happening in Afghanistan now. Oh. Yep, uh, there's a few, um, uh, three challenging and interesting um, uh, questions. Um, uh, the IRA, um, well, one of the historical eccentricities in Britain I mean, the, the, the main failure of British counterintelligence policy uh, was the government organization of counterterrorism was, I think the phrase ludicrously wrong uh, uh, fits. The, the problem was that uh, the um, uh, security service, MI5, during the 1970s and 1980s, was, had the lead intelligence role against um, all threats to the United Kingdom, with one exception, just happened to be the only exception that mattered, uh, that it was um, uh, IRA within the United Kingdom. Uh, so MI, uh, so the, the special branch had the lead role until 1992 against IRA terrorist threats in the, um, uh, the United um, uh, Kingdom. Within um, uh, Northern Ireland, uh, it was the special branch of the Royal Ulster Constabulary, which has since changed its name, until 2007. It wasn't until 2007 that MI5 got, um, got the lead role. So, yes, um, so far as the question about Germany is concerned, um, MI5 um, uh, wa did have the lead role against uh, the IRA in Germany, which, whether because of MI5 or not, was ludicrously as opposed to simply mildly foolishly unsuccessful. It, in the end, it ended up by killing uh, more uh, innocent victims, which it hadn't targeted, uh, than those which it did. Uh, the Irish Republic uh, is, of course, uh, a foreign country and therefore um, uh, comes under uh, MI6. The MI5 archives, well, one of the great things about MI5 archives, uh, as opposed to what stays in, is that it never occurred to anybody in MI5 uh, that the kind of archives that I've seen uh, would be seen by anybody else. Uh, they are arranged in such a way that you cannot make a change in any of the MI5 archives without it, um, it being recorded in the archives. Furthermore, I've had unlimited ability to um, uh, talk to um, uh, former members of the service. Uh, the sentence that I always love is, of course, this was not written down. Um, it, the MI5 archives look uh, pretty much like the ones that you can now see up to um, about 50 years ago in, uh, the, um, in, in, in Q. But even in Q, everything that is removed is meticulously recorded. There is no such thing as an MI5, and I've introduced these archives twice a year for the last some years, uh, in which um, the, um, uh, the fact that something has been uh, removed is, is not uh, recorded. So these are not doctored archives. And uh, one of the things that I notice from time to time is that people say it would be very embarrassing if um, this or that was known. Let me give you one example. Um, there, uh, in the, the archives of the mid-1970s, it said that, you know, we must make sure that Whitehall, uh, various parts of Whitehall, do not know that we're only spending 7.5% of our resources on counterterrorism. And this includes both the PFLP and the, um, uh, the IRA. This is not doctored stuff. In any case, doctoring 
3 million files would require about 3 million people. Uh, the IRA, the um, uh, MI5 has never had uh, that number of people. And as I've been able to ask unpredictably uh, for any particular file, as, um, as, as to um, why um, the MI5 failed to um, uh, realize the problem of um, uh, weapons of mass destruction um, and how, how far it contributed to uh, the appalling intelligence failure of um, weapons of uh, mass destruction assessment in Iraq. It never made such an assessment. It is a domestic security service. It's, uh, it's foreign intelligence that deals with issues like that. I mean, you'll find in my book plenty of things that MI5 got wrong, but the idea that he got Iraq wrong, well, first of all, it would have had to break the rules and get involved in Iraq in the first place. Yes, up there in the middle. You've spoken quite a lot about long-term planning and um, how important that is for the, um, the, the security service. Um, I do feel that there's an issue of agility in that although long-term planning is, is a key to agility, there's also short-term agility needed. And how does um, no. MI5 do that? And uh, if you have any anecdotes as well, that would be quite useful. <laughs> Thank you. You bet. <laughs> Go ahead. Okay. Um, uh, long-term planning. Well, I think the secret of long-term planning is to accept uh, the inevitability of, of surprise. And that is, uh, well, that's one of the things one needs to accept. But let's take the beginning of the uh, First World War. And uh, the first 80 years of uh, MI5 are largely, you know, its priorities are largely determined uh, by what is going on in the two largest European states, in other words, Russia and Germany. Not things which are predictable. The idea that in August 1915, there was anybody who could have predicted uh, that at the end of the First World War, um, Europe's most authoritarian monarchy would become the world's most revolutionary state. Completely impossible. Uh, the idea that the Kaiser's Germany, and the Kaiser seemed pretty solidly established on his throne, would become a shamblingly incompetent Weimar Republic from which Adolf Hitler would emerge at the age of 43, having spent three years in a DOS house, I've been there, in Vienna before the First World War, uh, as the, the, the most aggressive and popular leader in Europe. One needs to uh, 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 realize that in long-term planning, there are lots of things that one can't foresee. But that is no excuse for not taking uh, a long-term view. Uh, and I would say that um, uh, those people who persuaded me two years ago uh, to move my um, uh, money uh, to the Cambridge Building Society without realizing that Cambridge Building, oh, well, anyway, um, no, <laughs> were people who were taking a, a long-term view. So uh, there are two secrets. One, take the long-term view, and secondly, expect to be surprised. I mean, that is what um, uh, human experience um, teaches us. And how do you do this? By being exactly what you described, by being agile. But if you expect to be surprised, you are agile. Um, if you um, uh, don't expect to be surprised, really, whatever profession you are in, it is time to retire. <laughs> there are many lessons to be drawn from this uh, masterful work of history. I would encourage all of you to read it. The two lessons that I'm left with after tonight is, uh, first and foremost, these. Um, intelligence ought to matter to historians much more than what it does today. And, of course, we are all looking forward to the day when more historians will get access to more materials that are dealing with intelligence history, not just in this country, uh, but, but in other countries as well. But perhaps even more important than that lesson 
is the fact that history matters and ought to matter for people who make decisions with regard to intelligence. I think perhaps that one lesson, having looked at parts of the book, is the one that really stands out here. And it is a lesson that is of crucial importance, I think, for protecting Britain and protecting Europe in the years to come. It has been a true delight to host you here tonight, Chris. We really enjoyed your lecture. We hope that you will be back here soon. Thank you very much.